Good morning. I want to thank you all for having me in your pulpit this morning and for the opportunity that you've given me to do ministry among you this summer. It's very good to be back in the congregation where I grew up, also a congregation that strongly supports my regular ministry with college students through Ukirk, Nashville. And it is always a joy to worship with the people of God wherever they are. So thank you for having me. Two weeks ago on Trinity Sunday, one of the scriptures that Heidi read was Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. This is what's often called the Great Commission. And you know that story. Just before ascending into heaven, the risen Jesus gathered his disciples together and charged them to go out into the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey everything that he had commanded. The Great Commission turned the disciples, learners, into apostles, messengers, ones who are sent. It was like a graduation a tidy ending to the Gospel of Matthew. Today I'm going to read a passage that occurs earlier in Matthew's Gospel. There's an error here. I'm, I'm going to start reading in chapter 9, verse 35. This passage doesn't have a title that's so grand. It's no great commission, but it describes a similar scene of gathering in and instructing and sending back out. And it's this commission that we'll explore. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, these twelve. Jesus sent out with the following instructions, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give 
without payment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join your hearts with mine in prayer. Loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts on this your holy word be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. Everywhere that Jesus went, he was met by human need. More and more people came to see Jesus, and as the crowd swelled, so did his compassion. Jesus was not overwhelmed or discouraged by what he saw. More need meant more opportunity for ministry. The harvest is plentiful. It's just that the laborers are few. It was time to get his disciples involved. So Jesus brought them together and gave them power to heal as he healed. And being so equipped, they would go out to their neighbors, extending the reach of Jesus's ministry that much further. And as Jesus instructed them, they would preach the good news. Now, these were early days. We are only a third of the way into the Gospel of Matthew here. So to this point, the disciples have seen Jesus heal. They've heard him teach. More dramatically, they have witnessed Jesus calm a storm, cast out demons, and even raise a dead girl to life. But they haven't recognized yet that Jesus is the Messiah, We're in chapter 9 and 10. That's coming in chapter 16. The disciples have not seen Jesus in glory. The transfiguration is in chapter 17. And they have heard nothing about the cross or the resurrection. I think of them like college sophomores. They've decided on a major, but They don't know half of what they will by the end. And yet this is the moment. This is the moment when the disciples are still in the middle, still learning, still flailing. This is the moment when Jesus sends them out to do ministry, to work miracles no less than his, to preach the gospel when the gospel isn't even finished yet. What is this gospel that precedes the cross and the empty tomb? The kingdom of heaven has come near. That's it. That's the good news according to Jesus. More would be said about Jesus, but the message of the kingdom was what he proclaimed himself and what he told his disciples to proclaim. The kingdom of heaven has come near. God is close, Jesus said. He's right around the corner. And more than that, God's way of doing things, God's rule, God's reign, it's accessible to us. The kingdom is near, almost here. And every now and then it breaks through. The miracles are hints. They're like pointed fingers. There it is. There's the kingdom. Wherever there's a cure, 
wherever there is a coming back to life, there it is. Wherever good strikes a blow against evil, even a little bit, there's the kingdom. There it is. There is the wholeness of God among us here and now. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Can you believe it? Would you believe it if you heard it from a poor fisherman like Peter? Would you believe it if you heard it from Matthew, the tax collector, that lackey of the empire? Would you believe it from Thomas, who might be prone to doubt it himself? Would you believe it from Judas? In 1966, John Lennon gave an interview in which he famously or notoriously declared that the Beatles, his band, were more popular than Jesus. Now, this statement caused controversy among fans and the public, particularly in the American South. Radio stations stopped playing the Beatles songs, and some even hosted bonfires so you could burn your records. But Lennon, while irreverent, he wasn't making a claim to messiahship. He wasn't saying the Beatles should be more popular than Jesus. He was pointing out that religion was in decline, which was hardly a novel idea in 1966. This was the same year that Time magazine would publish its also notorious Is God Dead cover story, a story which explored the shrinking role of religion in modern life. Lennon was a spiritual seeker himself, and it's just that he knew who was to blame for Christianity's irre- irrelevance to him. He said this, same interview. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. And it's them twisting it that ruins it for me. I think we can all think of a time when Christ's disciples have disappointed us or a time when we've been disappointed in ourselves. Still, thick and ordinary disciples are the ones that Christ chooses. His disciples were and are imperfect people, barely prepared, who mix up the message half the time. And still, somehow, the gospel comes across Generation after generation, century after century. Matthew doesn't tell us whether the gospel, uh, whether the disciples' first foray into ministry was successful. We actually don't know. But then again, here we are telling this story, repeating this message. So it must have gone okay. As disciples... We are still called to start in the middle. We are works in progress. We are full of contradictions. We don't have all the answers. We're not entirely sure what we believe. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to be sure before I go proclaiming anything to anybody. 
And yes, this makes preaching hard. But neither you nor I have the luxury of waiting until we are ready. As the 16th century mystic Teresa of Avila once wrote, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which Christ looks compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth, but yours. Whatever else we are, we are the body of Christ. We are the conduit of grace, the medium of hope. Freely you have received, freely give. The goodness of God flows through us freely. Nothing is required of us but to remain open. Nothing is required but to let Christ inhabit us, work through us, wherever we are, here and now, as we are. And this is what it means for us to be Christians. Father Theophane Boyd, a Cistercian monk and spiritual teacher of the last century, told fables about a novice monk's encounters with more senior brothers. In one such story, the young man approached several of his superiors with the same question. He asked, what great blunder have you made? And the monks gave varied answers until one said, they called me a Christian, but I did not become Christ. Taken aback, the younger man asked, you did not become Christ? Is one supposed to become Christ? His elder explained, I kept putting distance between myself and him by seeking, by praying, by reading. I kept deploring the distance, but I never realized that I was creating it. And still the novice protested, is one supposed to become Christ? His answer no distance. You and I are not monks. We've not taken holy orders. And yet we are invited by stories like this one and by today's scripture to reflect. Christ instructs his disciples to engage in a ministry just like his. Ready or not, we are Christ's body in the world. And so, whatever we are doing to put distance between ourselves and our vocation, to bring hope and healing to a hurting world, we have to examine that. What trumps compassion? Many things for most of us. We have lots of ways of putting distance. The desire to go our own way, the desire to keep what is ours, 
the desire to avoid failure. We throw up all of these obstacles and more. The monk in the story has had to face that even his worthiest activities, seeking after the truth, praying, reading the Bible, even these can create distance between himself and Christ. That's puzzling. But perhaps what is missing for him is to do Christ's work. We are nearest to him in ministry, and in his presence there is joy. Maybe it's too lofty to aspire to no distance. But don't we pray every week for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Friends, you and I could wait forever for the perfect moment, but it has always been now. We could wait for the perfect ministry context, but it has always been here, right in the middle of our lives with everything else going on. We could worry about doing it wrong, and we certainly will, We are thick and ordinary, but we are the body of Christ, extending grace, proclaiming hope, living love, and this must become the first thing about us, to be Christ in classrooms and boardrooms and hospitals and soup lines, on lunch breaks and night shifts, on work sites and playgrounds, with family and friends, to strangers and enemies on city streets, in the halls of justice, in the fields of Christ's harvest. May we be what he needs us to be, what he has always believed we can be, the church that proclaims how very near the kingdom has come. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.